The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I forgot uh, yesterday I had a um, have a transparency here of um, this is uh, one of the Chester Beatty biblical papyri. This is Papyrus 46 that I talked about uh, yesterday, and um, I realized that cannot see this very well, but um, this is the first uh, page, if you will of the letter to the Ephesians and um, as you can see the uh, the text is just running uh, this is a um, a uh, wider column than the ones that I showed you from Codex uh, Sinaiticus uh, remember this was produced this particular papyrus was produced about the year 200 uh, Codex Sinaiticus like Codex Vaticanus produced about the middle of the fourth century in a more professional way so that you have these uh, bigger pages and then several columns uh, across. This is just a column per page. And um, one of the details about Papyrus 46 that shows the significance of this document has to do with the very first verse. Um, I don't know how much you can follow this with transparency, but here begins the text. Uh, this is Paulos, Paulos, Apostolos, Christu Jesu, uh, Apostle of Jesus Christ, Diathelematos, through the will, Theou, uh, here's one of these uh, abbreviations of the divine name. You just have the theta and the upsilon with the horizontal line on top indicating this is an abbreviation for the divine name so through the will of God tois hagiois to the saints usin kai pistois and Christo Jesu what happens here is that um, most other manuscripts that are relatively late manuscripts at this point says usin enefeso who are in Ephesus. Now, Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and a few others uh, that are also relatively early do not have the words in Ephesus. And when this papyrus was discovered about 60 years ago, uh, pushing the text back more than a century prior to the earliest documentation we had uh, up to that point, here's a further confirmation that very likely uh, the original text did not have those words in Ephesus. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of theories about what is going on here. One of them is that um, this was really a letter which Paul wrote. It's sort of like a circular, circular, circular letter to a number of the congregations in Asia Minor. And that either Ephesus was the first church that he was to go to or the last church to go to, or simply because Ephesus was the capital of that province of Asia Minor, um, the copy that was eventually um, copied from, you see the idea would be that every time the letter was read in one of the churches, wherever it was being read, the person reading would, would put the name of his church, you see. And maybe in this particular case, the name of Ephesus got... Uh, um, connected with the letter, even though originally it, may, it was not perhaps exclusively sent to the church in Ephesus. So um, this is very interesting for a variety of reasons. You see, paleographically, it's a very important document, very ancient and so on, but also more specifically in, term, in terms of textual criticism, when you're dealing with variations among the manuscripts, uh, Papyrus 46 uh, is one of our, of our primary uh, sources for uh, the, the earlier attestation of the text. 
<clears throat> well, um, any questions about this uh, little detail here? If you could turn on the light again, please. <clears throat> We're talking about Codex Sinaiticus, and uh, the last, yeah. Probably to those who also are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right. In dealing with the with Codex Sinaiticus, we we're talking about the corrections um, and trying to make a distinction uh, between various sets of correctors over the centuries. And um, could close the door. Oh, somebody coming? Yeah. Um, because the, um, the text that became more or less the standard text in the church in the Middle Ages was a little different from the text you have in Codex Sinaiticus and some of these earlier manuscripts. Uh, in the course of time, there was a tendency to make corrections on the earlier manuscripts to conform it to the text that had become standard at a later point. And for that reason, and perhaps other reasons, uh, over the centuries, there were a variety of correctors of Codex Sinaiticus. Um, you know, every once in a while, somebody would come look at this beautiful manuscript and then start making note notations or whatever, uh, possibly just for personal reasons or to indicate variations, uh, whatever. As a result, uh, after many centuries of this, uh, you can identify maybe as many as, as nine different sets of corrections. And if you count every one of them, many of which are almost totally insignificant, it's about 14,000 of these little markings uh, throughout the, um, the whole text. But most of them, uh, either because they're very late or because they're just trivial in character, really uh, are of no uh, relevance to uh, textual critics. The last thing that I want to, to say about uh, Codex Sinaiticus has to do with the date of the manuscript. How do we determine uh, these things? Well, again, paleographers uh, with their specialized tools and methods and so on uh, are able to... Um, identify the, at least the approximate time when uh, these manuscripts were uh, uh, produced. In certain cases, uh, it's a very technical sort of thing where you examine the, uh, you know, chemically or whatever, the ink and, and so on. But um, there are other uh, data that can be used in this regard. For example, we can establish that uh, the manuscript could not have been written prior to the year 300. The reason we know that, or one of the reasons we know that, is that there is a system of notations that Metzger says a little bit about called the Eusebian apparatus. The Eusebian apparatus. This happens to be a set of um, rather clever set of parallel references to the Synoptic Gospels. In fact, if you look at your uh, Greek New Testament, at least uh, the Nestle Allen text uh, does give you uh, the whole, all the tables so that somebody, by looking at the signs on the text itself, could then refer to the table and see where the parallels are and, and how many and so on among the Synoptic Gospels in particular. Now, as the name indicates, this was uh, done by Eusebius, and we know that he uh, worked uh, in the early part of the fourth century, and uh, therefore the apparatus probably was uh, produced you know, in, in the early 300s, because that apparatus is integral to the composition of, of Codex Sinaiticus, you can determine that um, it couldn't be any earlier than the year 300. And there are some other details. On the other hand, it is almost certainly no later than the year 400. And uh, one of the uh, bits of information that you can use for that uh, question has to do with the 
form of the script, the form of the letters, because there are certain patterns in the uh, development of, uh, of, the, of the writing, of the handwriting. Uh, for example, the upsilon is uh, written what you might call a relatively shallow uh, letter. After about the year 400, there was a development in the, uh, in the script where, where the upsilon had a much sharper angle. And um, of course, if you, if you only have one of these bits of information, you know, it, it could be a fluke or an exception or whatever, but when you have a whole pattern of uh, details that um, quite clearly set the handwriting as belonging in a certain period, about the fourth century, uh, then you're fairly confident, especially if you have some other uh, information that uh, confirms that. So, um, you know, three to four hundred are the extreme limits. And uh, most scholars would simply date it around the middle of the century, about, about 350, although certainly you cannot be that precise. Uh, but that's a pretty safe uh, date. Well, I wanted to spend a bit of time talking about one manuscript to give you at least some idea of the kinds of things that uh, need to be done with, with every manuscript that comes along. You know, you discover it, you want to find out as much as possible about it uh, so that uh, when you use the, the text that is, if, that is found in that manuscript, you're able to do it within the context of, of all the data that may be of significance uh, to you. Any questions about uh, Codex Sinaiticus? Or for that matter, Greek manuscripts in general? Do they always write that way? Basically, basically. There were no words, were they? Oh, yeah. Sure. It, it's just that, um, I mean, we, because all we have known is separating the words with spaces, it's difficult sometimes for us to understand, well, what really is going on there? Now, you do have in the ancient world, uh, sometimes inscriptions might might be produced stone inscriptions and maybe a little dot in between the letters to separate words. People were conscious that, that words were, you know, separate things, but uh, uh, since they read a lot anyway, and uh, in English it's, it's a bit more problematic uh, than it is in Greek. And it's only the very rare case where you could separate things differently from the way that they were intended. Occasionally that happens, but it's not very frequently. Yeah? I've got some friends of mine. I'm still cursive office. It's a larger version of that. I don't remember seeing that. Um, the the unshul, it's certainly not cursive because, because you're not linking the letters together and so on. Uh, but it is a it is a smaller version of the capital letters. And um, trying to, to think what might have led to uh, any uh, comments like that, um, you, you do want to make a, a distinction between capitals, which, for example, were used with the inscriptions. And that's very rigid and formal whereas the, uh, the Ansho was a, a scribe's hand. And in, in that sense, you know, it, it's handwriting in a, in a sense that the capitals are not handwriting, they're more formal, if you will. But, um, but then the, the later development of the, of the minuscule form is actually a combination of certain features of the Ansho type with the more popular uh, cursive handwriting. Question. Who gathered the sources? We we have no knowledge of um, of what the scribe may have used as a master copy. Um, you know, I guess one can hypothesize, but um, I'm not sure why. Why at least. The hexapla. Now, the hexapla applies only to the Septuagint, not to the New Testament as such. And most of Origen's uh, 
textual work had to do with the Septuagint. Uh, now he probably obviously did some work with the, um, with the New Testament as well. But uh, I think what we need to realize is that um, um, we don't have any historical datum. You know, there isn't a father out you know, back there who makes specific reference to this manuscript. And so you're led to hypothesizing. Um, we, we have no reason to believe necessarily that there was a collection of documents that made that, that um, from which Sinaiticus was formed. Maybe it, it, it is very likely, but not absolutely certain, that uh, they may have had a copy of, of the prophets and then separately a copy of the Gospels and separately a copy of the Pauline letters and so on and that these served as the master copies for the whole Bible. But uh, we do not even know that for sure. I mean, for all we know, there was a master copy of the whole thing that uh, Codex Genericus was copied from. Yeah. In the Sept, because of the Septuagint, yes, but the Old Testament, plus these two books that are associated with the New Testament, the Shepherd of Hermas and uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. Also, like for a, a verse like Mark 16, 19, right. 20, would you have that in there? Or no, it's what? missing of, in Codex Sinaiticus, yeah. Hmm? The order of the books, um, the, the order of, of the books in, in New Testament manuscripts, uh, particularly the earlier ones, there's some fluidity. Now, always the Gospels came first, followed by Acts. And, and the letters of Paul, the order of the letters of Paul is not absolutely exact in all of the manuscripts. And then there's some further variation beyond that. But um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's so much, I don't know what I mean by canonical priority. Well, what I guess I'm saying is, you know, you've got the entire Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, some of the things that I have mentioned, the, uh, the handwriting, the ink, uh, they probably did do, uh, you know, a carbon dating type of uh, work on it as well. And, and really, it is not in dispute. Everybody agrees that it couldn't be any later than 135, something like that. Yes? I'm sure, but I don't. I can't tell you rough the bat where that might uh, be. Um, um, probably what I would do. I would first thing that I would do is go to the, to Metzger's to the bibliography in Metzger's book and see if there's a title there that might give me a clue. Uh, beyond that, I just have to go to the library and start, you know, digging around. Yeah. Okay, let's move on then to. Um, the next topic of um, <clears throat> here in the uh, outline, and uh, we move from the Greek manuscripts themselves <clears throat> to um, another source of uh, material that helps to uh, give us, you know, further information about the condition of the text, and that has to do with the quotations found in the patristic literature, the early fathers of the church, uh, both Greek and Latin. When you get a uh, quotation in a um, Greek or Latin father, there's a particular significance to that because we are able now to relate a particular form of the text with a, with a very narrowly defined chronological period and, on top of that, with a more precise geographical location. This is very important. You see, if you find a manuscript, um, the place where you find the manuscript is not necessarily the place where the manuscript was actually produced. And uh, that manuscript does not necessarily give you 
the, the text which was uh, generally accepted in that locality. But if you have an important uh, theologian who you know, we know happened to be a presbyter in some important church, you know that this is a text that he happened to be reading in church. This, this, would, this would be the church accepted, the, the text accepted by the church in a particular church, a particular geographical location. And, and you can date it within you know, a couple of decades. And that gives you a, specific, a specificity, if you will, about the state of the text that uh, adds a great deal of value to that particular kind of evidence. Moreover, you have so much of this. You know, um, if you go to the library, the second floor, and you go straight ahead, <clears throat> instead of turning to the, to the main stacks, but there are some stacks right straight, straight, uh, straight ahead, there is the famous uh, uh, collection of patrology um, by a fellow in the last century called Ming. And uh, they're referred to simply as PG and PL, Patrologia Graeca and Patrologia Latina, the Greek and Latin uh, fathers. Hundreds of enormous volumes. Um, with uh, the sermons, the letters, the commentaries, uh, treatises, and so on of uh, virtually all of the fathers uh, whose writings have survived. Well, they're constantly referring to the Bible, to the New Testament, quoting it or paraphrasing it or alluding to it. And uh, it is very difficult work collating all of that and doing it in a responsible way. But uh, it's just a, a treasury of, of data there that needs to be uh, taken seriously. Unfortunately, uh, there are some problems involved in uh, not only collating that data, but also evaluating it and trying to figure out just how much use it is for us. Uh, for one thing, there's the problem of um, what I have just mentioned. Namely, sometimes it is a clear quotation, other times just a paraphrase or an allusion. And uh, if you find a quotation and, and there's a variation between that and another text, you cannot simply assume that it is a real textual variant. It may simply be that the father was quoting the Bible somewhat loosely, as we do all the time, you know, on preachers every Sunday, you know, preachers may refer to a passage and not quote it exactly the way it's in their Bible. Uh, they might do that. And uh, it takes a little bit of, uh, more than just a little bit of familiarity and expertise to, uh, uh, to know when you can be sure about uh, the uh, exactness of the quotation. Moreover, as if that were not enough, the uh, writings of these fathers have themselves been copied and copied and copied. You see, there's a textual transmission that needs to be looked at with regard to the father's own writing. Or to put it differently, you have to do textual criticism of that particular father's writings before you can use the writings for the textual criticism of the New Testament. And sometimes that can be uh, an interesting problem. I'll give you a couple of uh, um, examples of that. And let's do that by focusing on John Chrysostom as, again, a little special study or, or you know, just try to give some meat to, uh, uh, put some meat on the bones, if you will, give some um, concrete illustrations of what we're talking about. Uh, Chrysostom, as you probably know, was one of the most influential leaders of the church at the end of the fourth century. He was a um, he was very well educated. He had a strong training in the classics, philosophy, rhetoric, and so on. And uh, he was exposed to what came to be known as the Antiochian exegesis of a fellow named uh, Diodorus. Uh, the important thing here is that uh, 
Chrysostom was raised in Antioch, uh, which you will remember was a very, very important city there in northern, uh, north of Palestine. And um, there, were, there was a school of biblical interpretation that came to be known as the Antiochene school of exegesis, if you will, that had paid a lot of attention to the historical meaning of the text uh, in contrast to the Alexandrian methods of interpretation, origin, and so on. And uh, what that meant is that Chrysostom learned his Bible and his way of reading the Bible in a way that um, involved fairly serious exegetical study. He uh, became a hermit, as anybody, anybody worth his salt used to in those days. Uh, for about six years, you understand what was happening there in the fourth century up to uh, the beginning of the fourth century. If you were a faithful Christian, you would get persecuted and, and uh, executed. Once, um, you know, Constantine and everything else so that Christianity became the religion of the empire, you couldn't get executed anymore. So the next best thing is to become a hermit. And um, that's what Chrysostom did for about six years, but he became quite ill and uh, returned to Antioch. Uh, he became a presbyter in the year 386, three, uh, 386. Uh, he would have been about, um, I don't know, less than 40 years old. And um, as a presbyter, he was the, you know, the primary leader of the church there in Antioch. And uh, for 12 years, he um, preached the gospel, the, the biblical message, patiently. There was a very rigorous exposition, very practical as well. And um, against his own wishes, because he really didn't want this, he was appointed um, bishop of Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Empire. He became the patriarch. Unfortunately, uh, that was a position surrounded by, you know, you were right in the middle of a morass of intrigues, political kinds of things going on. And the situation got very bad, um, and he was eventually banished uh, in the year 404 and died about three years later in Asia Minor. Because of all his preaching, and, and you know that uh, he was in, in great demand, he was very, very eloquent uh, a preacher, so he combined a lot of uh, substance with an ability to uh, deliver that message uh, very, very effectively. And there is the story, maybe you've heard that um, routinely people would uh, applaud uh, after his uh, sermons, and that, would, that really bothered him. And he decided one day to preach a sermon against um, applauding. And uh, I mean, he really put himself into this, you know, how terrible it is to do this. And, and, uh, and uh, it was a very powerful sermon. And when he finished, he uh, was standing ovation. Um, <laughs> anyway. His writings are very extensive because uh, his sermons were written down um, and um, lots of other uh, works filled with references to scripture. And so Chrysostom become, becomes very important for us because his quotations reflect the text the Greek text of the New Testament, as it was prevalent in Syria during the last uh, decades of the fourth century, say the second half of the fourth century. And when you look at it carefully, you find that it is basically what uh, we now refer to as the Byzantine text. Now, we haven't talked about the, the various text types, but uh, as we shall see, uh, it is possible to identify the text of manuscripts according to categories. And there's something called the Alexandrian text type and the Western text type. 
the Byzantine text type became the standard text later in the church. And Chrysostom is one of the earliest um, writers whose text is of that type, the Byzantine text type. So that, for example, in Ephesians 1, verse 1, uh, he his text definitely said in Ephesus. And that's one of the characteristics of the Byzantine uh, type. But, as uh, I've already mentioned, there are some problems. Uh, in the first place, there is the need to determine the text used, I mean, Chrysostom's own text, because there are many manuscripts of his writings. And so a, um, a scholar whose field is patristic literature uh, needs to look at the various manuscripts, let's say, of, of Chrysostom's commentary in Galatians, and uh, look at them carefully, see the differences, and, uh, and make sure that uh, that text is accurate. Now, maybe I can give you an example of um, what people need to do nowadays. There are some uh, critical editions of the fathers. This one, for example, uh, is not of the New Testament. It's of um, a commentary on the Psalms. Uh, by an early father, I need to call him Didymus, something or other. Uh, um, trying to remember the, uh, his full name. It doesn't really matter. What I'm, what I'm concerned to show you is that here you have a modern edition of this particular commentary on the Psalms, on the Greek text of the Psalms. And as you can see, there's a prologue to Psalm 1. Then, in this modern edition, the actual text of the psalm is in boldface, and then the comments, and so it goes. And then you have this apparatus. See, these are manuscript variations, not of the biblical text, but of the text of this commentary. And so the editor is giving you all that information. Now, one of the really interesting things that uh, you come across when you're working through this material is that the, the text as it is quoted, you know, as the heading for, your com for the comments, sometimes does not match the biblical text when it is commented on. Now, what would cause that? Well, actually, the, the answer is very simple. Let's suppose that there is a scribe in the 12th century who is copying... Chrysostom's, Chrysostom's commentary in Galatians. Then, uh, this particular scribe, he's familiar with the Bible, with his Bible, with his Greek text of the New Testament. And now, um, he sees the heading, that is the text that is going to be commented on, and it looks different from what he's familiar with. He checks his own copy of the text. Oh, wait, there's a mistake here. So he changes the text in, in Chrysostom's commentary to correspond with the text that he's familiar with. However, as he keeps uh, writing, Chrysostom is really commenting on a slightly different text, and he really cannot change the comments, uh, and so he, leaves, he may not even notice the discrepancy. And uh, he continues to copy the text, the, the commentary, you see, even though now he has unwittingly introduced a slight discrepancy. Now, for that reason, sometimes um, a, the editor of a Greek New Testament who is giving you the evidence from a father needs to distinguish between those two things. So uh, you might be reading your Greek New Testament, and um, actually th this is not a real case, but just to illustrate how it might happen using the, ex the, um, uh, the, the Romans 5.1 passage again. Let's suppose that, again, you have uh, Echomen in the text that is up in Romans 5.1, and then uh, the... Um, uh, the editor of your Greek text tells you, well, yeah, but uh, 
there's the one with the omega, and there's Codex Sinaiticus with the asterisk, and so on and so forth. And then he might give you a Chrysostom. And then he might um, do this, TXT, as a superscript. And then when he gives you the evidence for the Omicron, he might give you Chrysostom, Lemma. That's his way of telling you, hey, there is a discrepancy between the lemma, which is the heading, where the biblical text is quoted first, and then the text of Chrysostom's own commentary. Another problem is that um, instead of that, you might have something like this. One slash three and two slash three. That's his way of telling you, actually Chrysostom quotes this passage three times. One time he quotes it with the subjunctive, two times he quotes it with the indicative. And then what do you do with it? Uh, probably shouldn't do much with it, because if there is that kind of inconsistency in, the, um, uh, in Chrysostom's quotations, it's much more difficult. Now, sometimes there are ways of, of figuring things out, but uh, uh, it, it's difficult to be sure if, if you have that kind of inconsistency. This particular problem, you see, is really another version of the, of the, more, of the larger problem that you're not always sure whether a father is quoting the text verbatim or whether he's paraphrasing or just quoting somewhat loosely. And uh, for that reason, the, using the, uh, the patristic evidence is, is very, very difficult. And uh, it's full of uh, you know, pitfalls, and you've got to be careful not to, to uh, place so much weight on it that you are unaware of, of these uh, ambiguities. In spite of the problems, however, uh, if... If there are other kinds of information, other kinds of data that fit in with the, with the information you're getting from, your, from the father, uh, that can be of tremendous help in, uh, in establishing certain kinds of textual relationships. And um, as, as part of the total picture, it, um, it just helps enormously when a textual critic is having to make a decision about the transmission of the text and about the, the likelihood of which the original reading might be. Yeah. Why don't we wait? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go through all that uh, as we move on. Okay, any questions on the patristic uh, quotations? Uh, yeah. He would know that, that a change was made. Right, that's right. Now, the other also happens. You know, a, a scribe might make a note on the text, might write something on the margin. And you know what the, what the next scribe might do? Oh, what's that doing in the margin? It probably belongs in the text. <laughs> and, and you need to understand that the scribes here are not trying to mess up the text. It's exactly the opposite. They want to be very sure that they're not letting anything fall through and they think they're doing the right thing. And, and so it, it complicates matters sometimes. And scribes usually were, were afraid of leaving stuff out, you see. So if it's there, hmm, well, better keep it, you know. The next category has to do with the early versions or the early translations of the, uh, of the New Testament. Uh, for a brief survey of, the, survey of the evidence, I have already talked about this before, that we have three uh, versions in particular that are of a great value, the Latin, the Syriac, and the Coptic. Uh, Coptic, of course, is the, uh, the language in Egypt uh, after the Hellenistic period. It is really a, a later development of the Egyptian language but they began to use Greek letters to represent it instead of hieroglyphs. And um, there are several dialects of Coptic, and uh, correspondingly, 
we have several Coptic versions, depending on the dialect. The, uh, the two most important are the Bohairic and the Sahidic. Uh, generally, the Sahidic is uh, regarded a little bit more uh, highly, although you have to be careful about that, that kind of thing. The, uh, the Latin, we know that at a very early point, people were beginning to, to make translations, especially of the Gospels, probably very early in the second century. And um, there was a um, proliferation. Uh, there has been some debate, really, whether... You know, when you look at the, at the early Latin manuscripts, what is referred to as the Old Latin, to distinguish it from the Vulgate, which was produced later. You look at the manuscripts of the Old Latin, and there's so many differences that the question arises, was there one Lat Old Latin translation, and then these manuscripts are simply a lot of corruptions or whatever in the course of uh, time, or, what seems more likely, do you have a variety of translations, which then kind of get mixed as, as manuscripts are copied? Uh, the Vulgate, even though it is later, is also very important because Jerome, who is the one who put that together, was to some degree revising the old Latin version to, uh, to another degree. He was freshly translating and he used a lot of the evidence that was available to him, so it is a very, very important uh, piece of uh, evidence. And then there's the Syriac, uh, which, as you will recall, is really an Aramaic dialect. But please keep in mind that in the ancient world, in, in, uh, in, in the ancient Christian world in particular, the Syriac-speaking church was an extremely important and influential uh, part of the church. Uh, some of you who are taking uh, early church history know about the Nestorian controversies and so on. See, Chrysostom, living in Antioch, he preached in uh, Greek and probably spoke Greek and so on because that was the city. Antioch was part of Syria. And Syriac would have been spoken in Antioch even much more so in the outlying areas. And uh, Eastern Christianity, as we call it, was primarily the Syriac, or Aramaic-speaking uh, part of the church, uh, with Antioch and then the outlying areas. Very, very important. And uh, there were also several versions of the Syriac, and I'll be talking about that in, in more detail in just a moment. Using the versions also is a little bit of a problem. Uh, why? Well, we have the same thing as in the case of the fathers, first you've got to do textual criticism of the versions to make sure that you have a, a reliable text of the Syriac or, or whatever. And only then are you able to use the version in support of your text-critical work for the Greek text. The next problem, however, is that it is not in Greek. It is in some other language which means that you're going to have to, as some people call it, retrovert or translate back into Greek. What kind of Greek text uh, seems to be underlying the Latin or the Coptic or the Syriac? Sometimes it's relatively easy. Sometimes it's exceedingly difficult. And again, here there are some, some uh, crucial pitfalls that need to be avoided. Let's uh, talk about the Syriac, and in particular, the Peshitta. As I said, there were a number of uh, Syriac versions uh, made early on, probably as early as the second century. But the one that came to, um, to be the standard text is the Peshitta. The Peshitta. Let me uh, just give you a little bit of background about the early church. Uh, one scholar has actually made the comment that no branch of the early church has done more for the translation of the Bible than the Syriac speaking. Uh, there's a great deal of uh, documentation, and also there are a number of uh, important Syriac uh, fathers whose writings need to be taken into account for both textual and, and interpretive uh, issues. Uh, let me just give some of these things here. 
one of the earliest, possibly the earliest attempt to, uh, to deal with uh, the scriptures in Syriac was uh, the diatessaron uh, produced by Tatian. Uh, diatessaron, this is the word for four, you know, and uh, this was like a harmony of the Gospels, only it wasn't a harmony in the sense of four separate columns, but a continuous narrative which combines the, the data from all four Gospels. And uh, it has not survived uh, uh, completely, but um, it is extremely early and uh, rather important uh, source for textual criticism. Then there's the old Syriac, the old Syriac of the Gospels. I want to show you a couple of um, transparencies here. Um, <clears throat> the um, so-called Curaton Syriac Gospels, Curaton Syriac Gospels. Um, isn't that pretty? This was discovered in the middle of the 19th century by William Curiton and, uh, <clears throat> from the British Museum. When he, when he saw this uh, form of Aramaic, he was convinced that this was the original of Matthew's Gospel because there is a tradition that Matthew first composed his Gospel in the Hebrew dialect or something. And he thought that this is what it was. Nobody, well, uh, you know, scholars as a whole uh, don't think that's possible for, for a number of reasons. Sometime later, uh, two um, uh, ladies, two sisters, Scottish uh, women, uh, were visiting the monast monastery of St. Catherine, Mount Sinai, and they discovered a palimpsest. Remember what a palimpsest is? Uh, dating uh, back to the fifth century. And um, this is what it looks like, the Sinaitic palimpsest. Now, if that looks difficult to read, that's because it is difficult to read. Uh, it is a palimpsest. You know, you're writing over a, another text. Uh, the manuscript itself, as I said, is dated to about the fifth century. But obviously, the text that it contains is older than that. It would have been copied from a from some earlier manuscripts, so the translation probably possibly goes back to the third or second century. There's some debate about that. Yeah. What is oh my word! To this date, you know, you can go to any number of uh, museums, and there are hundreds of stuff there that, that no one has been able to catalog. Uh, but please uh, devote your life to this, and, and uh, <laughs> we'll have a lot more information. Yeah. You know, only, only 30 years ago, a Spanish scholar goes to the Vatican Museum and uh, he starts looking and he sees this manuscript. What is this? It's called Neophyti something or other. And goes through it. What in the world? This is the only complete copy of the Palestinian Targum. And, uh, you know, Neophyti now becomes a very famous word in biblical studies have been there for centuries, and nobody really understood what it was. Now, uh, let's move on to the Peshitta. It comes from, a, um, from an Aramaic or Syriac word, Peshat. And uh, there are different ways in which that has been understood. Uh, the name was first used in the 9th century, even though the translation itself goes back to possibly the 6th, 5th, or 6th century. Probably refers to uh, the simple translation. And by simple, it means that it was distinguished from other versions that had a complicated apparatus in all kinds of little details. Uh, others think, however, that um, the word Peshat has to do with stretching in the sense of uh, expanded, therefore something that is widely diffused, something like the word Vulgate, for example. Uh, so there's no total agreement as to what the significance of the word is. The transmission of the Peshitta is uh, very, very stable, very good. There are many hundreds of manuscripts. Uh, the variations among the manuscripts are relatively 
uh, minor and few in comparison with much other transmission. And uh, it is a very, very, very important source of evidence. But you, have, you still have a problem of, of establishing the text and uh, a lot of work yet remains to be done in producing a, a critical edition of the Peshitta that people can now use for other purposes. Then we have the problem of translating back. You see, Syriac and Greek are not identical languages. There are many similarities, but there are also many differences. And you cannot always be sure whether something in the Syriac text corresponds to uh, the, the Greek. Let me give you one uh, example of this. In uh, Syriac, in Aramaic, the, uh, there is no definite article as such. There's something called the determined state. Now, if you take the word for king, which in, you know, in Hebrew, some of you already know, is the word melech, the same in Aramaic. Uh, if you want to say the king, you don't really have a definite article as we are familiar with it, but you put something at the end, and it looks something like this in Syriac. Uh, Malka. And, and this ending is it's called the determined state and, and functions sort of like the uh, definite article. The problem is that in the development in the development of the Aramaic language, particularly this Eastern dialect, that form became more or less the standard form to use all the time so that it lost its distinctiveness. And, and by the time you get to the Peshitta, you cannot uh, always tell whether that form necessarily indicates something like the definite article. So let's suppose that you're dealing with a problem in the Greek text where some Greek manuscripts have the definite article, some do not have the definite article. Then you go to the Syriac for help, and you have this form, and you say, oh, look, it's a determined state. Therefore, that is evidence in support of the definite article. Not really because this form was often used in all kinds of contexts, even when the Greek does not have a definite article. So for this particular purpose, the Syriac is of no help. The same is true when you're dealing with differences in the verbal conjugations, because they are quite distinct in Greek from Syriac. Well, I'll say a little bit more about that uh, next time, and uh, we'll proceed uh, from there. <clears throat>